Hi everyone, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Roman Davis Fay. I'm the host of this show, the Climate Proof Food Podcast. I'm also the founder of Climate Proof Food, an online platform dedicated to building connections between plate, planet, and people. On this episode, I spoke with Dr. Beth Lovies, a lecturer at the University of Adelaide. Her PhD research began in the area of plant ecophysiology and then postdoctoral positions expanded her area of interest into the effects of global climate change on plant growth. She has written extensively on how climate variability and change will impact plant physiology and growth and the corresponding impact it will have on food production. Beth was also a Science Awards finalist in 2019 for STEM Educator of the Year in Tertiary Teaching. Beth also coordinates a number of university courses, one of them being Food Production in a Future Climate at the University of Adelaide. In this episode, we spoke about how our climate is changing and how anthropogenic man-made activities are contributing to these changes, what the impacts of global warming and climate change mean in terms of food production and the challenges of predicting future climate scenarios. We also spoke about the options we currently have to continue adequate food production in a changing climate. This was a wonderful and captivating episode to record, so I hope that you enjoyed listening to it just as much as I enjoyed recording. And saying that, let's get into it. Hi, Beth. Great to speak to you again. It has been a long time. I would like to thank you for taking the time to join me today for a little chat. I've really been looking forward to this discussion for a while now. Thanks for having me, Roman. Um, I was really excited to be contacted by you, and it's always so nice to see the face of a graduate who has, you know, survived being an undergraduate and is now out in the world doing real, real stuff. So very happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, so your background, so you've got some PhD research in the area of plant ecophysiology, and then you've had postdoctoral positions um, expanding into the areas of global climate change and the effects on plant growth. Um, seeing you've done a lot of writing on how climate variability and change will impact plant physiology and growth, and then on corresponding impacts it will have on food production. large part of what I'd like to talk about today is how some of our behaviours will be changing the, um, the environment of our planet, um, but it's also quite hard to connect all of the dots. But one that we can look at is global warming and its relevance to food production. Maybe we can look at this with a food-growing hat before we go into that, could we maybe jump on to climate change and sort of discuss what it is, like a little bit of refresher for a lot of people, because obviously we talk about it a lot today, but I think it's quite easy to brush it off and you know, mm. not, not accept the full gravity of what it means for us. Yeah, so um, I, guess, I guess the key messages which, as you say, often get lost these days in terms of what's What's really going on in the in the climate is all driven by increased um, release of CO2 into the atmosphere. Um, I guess not just CO2, but CO2 is the big one that you hear about, carbon dioxide. Um, methane is also a significant uh, greenhouse gas as well. And most of that uh, production of greenhouse gases comes from um, our burning of fossil fuels to produce energy. Um, if we think about it as a pie chart, the production of energy via burning of fossil fuels, that being coal or oil, I guess, and, and gas to some extent, but coal and oil are the two big ones, um, is, is, is where the problem starts. And 
we've known about how carbon dioxide in the atmosphere interacts with um, heat uh, since probably I think it was 1860 something the first experiment or maybe it was a bit later than that 1880 um, where someone put some CO2 in a jar by letting a match burn and measured the temperature inside that jar and it warmed up faster than the rest of the room. So right from from as early as the late 1800s, we've known about this effect of CO2 on trapping heat. Um, So the increased concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere is the biggest uh, driver of changes. So we then get what you what you call global warming, um, which you might also see in the literature or in the news as the enhanced greenhouse effect. So we rely on the greenhouse effect on Earth to stop us from being extremely cold. If we didn't have an atmosphere which had some greenhouse gases in it, our planet would not be habitable. So... Um, we rely on that greenhouse effect to to have a planet which we can live on. However, our production or our enhanced um, production of CO2 gas um, by burning fossil fuels has meant that we are now trapping a lot more of the sun's energy in our atmosphere and hence why we are seeing much hotter uh, atmospheric and sea temperatures. So those are the two main things that are driving change. Uh, then Then things get more complicated. So then we get changes in the water cycle. So a warmer atmosphere will hold more water. So you might have observed over the last, I guess, probably 15 years is is people our age, I'm, I'm a little little bit older than you, not, not much, but, you know, just a little bit, um, that things that are happening in the north of Australia, so monsoon areas, are ap- appearing to become much more severe. We're getting more intense rainfall events, um, more crazy cyclones and that sort of thing. And that's, of course, not limited to Australia, um, Northern Hemisphere are suffering those same things. And that's partly because the atmosphere is warmer so it can hold more water. And then when it when it does dump that water, it dumps it in a really big way. Um, we have seen, to some extent, those types of events happening in, in southern Australia, um, but that is interspersed with periods of much more extreme drought. So... Although the atmosphere is warmer and therefore able to hold more water, it doesn't necessarily fall where and when it historically has. So areas which were prime wheat, barley, oat growing areas are not getting the rainfall um, at the times and um, at the level of intensity that they were 25, 30 50 years ago. Um, so when we talk about climate change, we're talking about changes that are, uh, can be measured over the time span of decades. So one of the things that people often confuse is weather and climate 
people will say, well, I remember a really big heat wave back in, you know, 73 or whatever. Um, that's 1973 for the young people out there. Um, and sure, that happened. There were there were those those days back back 20, 30, 40 years ago um, where you would have said it's a really hot spell. But when we're looking at climate change, we're looking at patterns that are changing over, over decades. And the science is absolutely clear about temperature changes and CO2 changes, and it's becoming clearer uh, to, to uh, put the changes that we've observed in rainfall, uh, intensity and distribution um, can now be very uh, clearly linked to changes in atmospheric CO2 concentration. Um, I guess the other things that, uh, so we've talked about temperature and CO2 and then rainfall. There are also uh, changes to ocean currents, which are driven by changes in ocean temperature. Um, and that's obviously impacting not only, I guess, things that you see in the news, which is about coral bleaching and, and that sort of thing, which, of, of course, has, has been quite devastating, um, but we now call them marine heat waves where the temperature of the ocean um, is, as far as those creatures living in the ocean is concerned, is far too, far too hot to what they are evolved to, to withstand. And those changes in temperature change the way that the water moves around the globe. Um, and so you then get changes in um, plankton and microalgaes and all those, those bottom of the, of the food chain um, creatures, which then feed our, our bigger sea mammals. So, you know, that, that, that has then knock-on effects to... Um, all the, all the fishing industries. Um, I, I've been reading some interviews with um, fishers from fisher people uh, from up around Port Lincoln, which was traditionally the, the tuna capital of, of Australia, uh, and they are not catching most of their tuna in Port Lincoln anymore. They're catching it down around uh robe and those kind of areas so it's 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 changing the patterns of where um where marine species are so i guess those those are the main things in terms of the the large scale or macro climate things that are impacting um all the way down the food chain or up the food chain whichever way you want to look at it as a plant scientist, I always look at, I always think about plants as the top of the food chain, but they're, I guess they're the bottom. <laughs> no. Thank you, Beth. That was, yeah, really clear and concise explanation that paints a very good picture on how starting at a grander global scale that it then goes on to impact so many of the planetary systems and functions that sort of mm -hmm. maintain our planetary homeostasis sort of thing balances it all out because yep. you then begin to realize just how interconnected each of these individual impacts are and how as you were saying with 
interferences in marine life ecosystems and temperature changes and impacting those ecosystems mean there's a sh- negative impacts on the biodiversity and then its ability to maintain function and then what that means for food production or mm. water f- filtration. Um, all very frightening. Mm. Um, and glad you made that uh, clarification between the weather, the difference between weather and climate as well. I think that's something that people regularly get confused by mm. that, you know, saying that it's necess- it's going to be raining more does not equate to being a good thing and exactly that with frequency increase in frequency of droughts means that there'll be nearly no say water rainfall penetration into the soil because it's you know an extra month without rain means you've got that hard pan out in those areas and then that means we're losing a lot more topsoil more soil erosion yep Mm. oh it's very very frightening (laughs) um now, so this, in terms of Australia, I think you've painted a very clear picture about what climate change means and what and what this release of the amount of greenhouse gases that we're releasing into the atmosphere and how that will be changing our climate. Um, so we could summarise that by saying in Australia we'll be expecting a seasonal changes as well. So we'll be a, a lengthening of the dry period or maybe even gravitating towards two main seasons um yeah that that's that's certainly something that's a little bit uh hazy as far as my my interpretation of all the modeling um so of course a lot of a lot of what we base our our predictions on is is modeling um and we have some really amazing people uh at the University of Adelaide um, and also at Saudi who who do this this type of modelling but coming at it from an agricultural um, perspective, I suppose. Um, and so the, the scale at which we have accuracy at the moment is, is fairly wide or, or coarse, I guess. It's a, it's a fairly coarse scale. But and Australia is a big place. So, um, but we do have lots of little micro climates, I suppose, within our our mass, our continental mass. Um, one of the really interesting things is that winter rainfall in the southern part of Australia is certainly reducing. So, you suggested maybe we're looking at having having a two season um, type model, a bit more. Uh, bipolar, I suppose. I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not really sure if that will will end up panning out, because the the reduction in rainfall um, is is happening across the seasons. So we're not really seeing an intense um, period of more likely rainfall either in the summer or or in the winter. And as far as our cropping systems are concerned, that reduction in winter rainfall is actually very concerning because our our cropping systems rely on winter rainfall to fill the profile, to fill the soil profile at times when evaporation from that profile is is lower. So a reduction in in winter rainfall is is 
is pretty concerning, um, particularly for um, perennial crops like grapevine, one I know is close close to your heart, um, but but things such as almonds and uh, uh, avocados, there's a fair bit of avocados grown in, in southern Australia, um, those kind of things which rely on the soil profile being full um, before the, the serious business of growth in spring happens is, is concerning. You touched on the other issue regarding, you know, intense rainfall um, and runoff and loss of top topsoil. That's obviously a significant concern for all across all sectors of, of agriculture. Um, as far as uh, things, you know, broad acre and non-irrigated crops, again, that storage in the soil profile is, is a real issue. And I know so many growers, and this is not something that's happened recently, but over the last 20, 30, probably even 40 years, really trying to improve that organic matter content of their soil so that it retains more of that moisture. The challenge now for those kind of growers is to select the right variety, which is happy to sit in the soil until the rains come. Um, and then the rains will come and germination will happen. Um, again, there's, there's a bit of an offset in terms of um, you want the rain to come at the right time and then you don't want some rain and then you want a bit more rain just before before flowering and that sort of thing. So it's those, it's those timing issues that I think are becoming a real concern for, for growers. So Australia, we produce a lot of wheat and barley and, and broad acre and lots of our crops on relatively large scale. Um, do you think that increasing our organic matter, so in those broad acre crops is significant challenge or do we have ways that we can do that on a large scale i think because it can be on a smaller small to medium sized farms and mm. plots that it's a bit easier to put in the labor i think to increase the organic matter but i feel like it might be quite an obstacle on those really large scale scale farms that are it's more mechanized for instance yeah. Uh, it certainly is a challenge, that's for sure. Um, I have seen some absolutely amazing and inspiring um, growers um, up around, uh, I guess, between, I, I guess, around the, the Mallee area, just to be very general about it, um, where they are doing amazing things with rotations. Um, so it but it really relies on having the ability to fallow um, parts of your of your farm, um, and often grow something um, a nitrogen fixer that you will let sheep in to graze the top off, um, and then let it let it die, and then very gently with a with a minimal till um, combine it into the topsoil. So a couple of things you know, sort of restrict that. You've got to have the capacity to to be able to rotate your your pastures around. Um, so, and that that's a financial thing. It also means that more and more of uh, our farmers that were traditionally 
um, just wheat or just barley are diversifying to have um, some sheep as well so that they can they can not get a crop of wheat off off a field but they can um, grow something like a like like some sort of nitrogen fixer um, get the sheep in there then sell the sheep so they've got a bit of an income um, from from that that area of their property so I think there's things like that which which farmers are really getting into in terms of diversifying their risk so it really comes down to risk management um, and I think this is where the biggest um, hook for the for governments that change rules and, and legislation it, it's going to come down to to mitigating and managing risk um, and obviously our our primary producers are absolutely at the coal face of working out ways to do that I guess the 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 challenge is going to be for those people that um, once rainfall drops below a threshold um, and I don't know what that threshold is then you are going to run into a situation where you can't get any crop off a particular bit of land. Um, and at the moment, I so wheat is a really great example. Wheat yield has not increased in Australia for 25 years. So from the late 1800s um, until about 30 years ago, there was a steady increase in, in wheat yield and that was down to mechanisation and superphosphate and understanding about fallowing and um, understanding about no-till or, or low-till um, cropping and, all of, and then, of course, um, the breeding of dwarf varieties of wheat, all of which meant that over the, the last, I guess, 100 years, we have had a steady increase in wheat yields, but for the last 25 years, there has been no increase in, in wheat yield in Australia. Um, and that is driven by la uh, rainfall, reduced rainfall, increased severity and, and length of drought and increased extreme weather events. So even if it's not... Um, if it's not a drought, it might be hail or wind or any of those other things which can be damaging to crop production. So the ways out of that are GM crops, um, which, of course, is, is controversial to, to many people, um, or potentially moving where uh, wheat is grown. Uh, and there has been discussion of whether goiter's line uh, should be moved. So not sure how familiar people are with goiter's line. It's this, this line that the surveyor goiter decided where above it you couldn't grow wheat, below it you could. Um, and there is, there is it, it runs sort of through the Flinders Ranges uh, and kind of kind of goes along the the contour of of the uh, Mount Lofty ranges really um so yeah there's been um and it it sort of it 
prac- it, it, for all intents and purposes, does move uh, year on year, depending on on uh, climate. So yeah, a lot of a lot of things to consider. Um, I like what you said about mitigating risk, and I think it sort of adds to how we need probably more to raise awareness on it, on how important our primary producers are on not only producing our food but also how much the role they play in custodians of the land as well because they mm. do occupy such large parts of the Australian landscape and yep. just based on what you were saying with or how organic matter um, influences so water holding capacity for example that plays a role in the microclimate of that area as well so the practices that they're able to undertake will have quite a big impact on the overall sort of or that that climate of that area um which correct me if i'm wrong will influence the sort of climate climatic patterns and rainfall depending on the overall temperature and if we can keep temperatures a bit lower it means there's less chance that it will fall below that um threshold which we're then unable to restart cropping in absolutely absolutely a really good example of that was in um, when back in the uh, mid two thousands, I was living in Mildura, and that was at the the start of um, a, a decade long drought, and water restrictions were were brought in, and. Uh, no one was allowed to water their lawns and no one was allowed to water the the nature strips so the council stopped watering the nature strips everything went brown and it was discovered that this is absolutely the wrong thing to do because you immediately create that microclimate which is hotter is drier and that has much much further sort of knock on effects for the, the urban biodiversity um, and so in terms of managing resources uh, by by councils by governments by people who met who who deal with water um, those are the sorts of things which which need to be sort of taken into account and what you say about farmers being custodians of the land um, one of the one of the wonderful things about being a, a lecturer, as I am, um, I get to teach all of the next generation of farmers, and all of them say to me, "We want to leave the land better than we found it," um, and that's one of the things that stops me from getting climate change anxiety, which is which is a thing, um, and. Anyone who's feeling climate change anxiety, there's plenty of support out there to make you feel like you can do something, and that's one of the things that that gives me um, positive vibes uh, is knowing that the our future farmers really want to leave the land better than they found it. And it's those sort of things that just leave that little bit more confidence when you feel like you've faced with such a often overwhelming obstacle that is repeatedly bombarded at us 
um, can be a little <laughs> overwhelming at times. Back to um, when we're talking about modelling and the fact that our wheat yields have sort of plateaued for quite some time, how far ahead are the current um, models for, say, climate change impact on our yields looking? Um, are we expecting it to sort of plateau or are our yields for some of our biggest crops starting to reduce? Um, and are the in, and the way, because I imagine there's a number of different modelling methods that are used because mm-hmm. it'd be really hard to include all the variables and will, say, for wheat, is the modelling done by looking at the changes caused by atmospheric carbon or the increase in bushfires and different seasons because it's kind of hard to measure all of those variables into one model. That's yeah, yeah. So, so as you as you allude to, the models are um, as one of our modelers on campus. I love. I, I quote him all the time. He says they are stonkingly complex. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yes. So yes, they they are extremely complex, and of course, one of the things that they that that is is a moving a, a moving goalpost is what will the emissions scenario look like so will we have a business as usual in other words there is no reduction in um, fossil fuel burning and therefore co2 emission um, and then there's there's moderate and and low emission scenarios so whatever model you look at you've got to be really aware of of that parameter. That's one of the main things that will affect what the output of that model tells you. Um, but with with respect to, to modelling yields, it's kind of an interesting scenario. So most of the modellers um, think that if we hadn't had elevated CO2, um, then we might have actually seen more of a reduction in yield. So the, the, the fact that CO2 is required for plant growth, and this is something that you, if, if, you're, if you're keen to look at skeptics' websites, one of the things that they will say is plants need CO2. So high CO2 in the atmosphere is all good, bro. Um, and believe, I've actually had the odd student say that to, to me, which is great because it really opens up the floor for, for discussion. Let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is undeniable that, yes, plant, plants use CO2. They've, CO2, sunlight, water produces sugars, which is, which is the, the process of photosynthesis in the, the absolute basic, most basic terms. Um, so if we didn't have that elevated CO2, we may well have actually seen a bit of a reduction in wheat yield as opposed to just a plateauing of wheat yield. The problem is that increasing CO2 does all these other things. Uh, m- most importantly, um, increases temperature. And then we get all these knock-on effects of change in rainfall patterns and, and the like. So Unfortunately, we can't have elevated CO2 without all those other things because of the way that CO2 interacts with 
the light energy from the sun and trapping more energy in our atmosphere uh, in the form of heat. Um, so although see, plants are plants like wheat, so there are, there, are, there are two groups of plants, plants like wheat which have a certain photosynthetic pathway and then there's plants such as maize, for example, which has a slightly different way of capturing um, the energy from the sun and CO2. Um, plants like wheat are CO2 limited. So that means if you increase the concentration of CO2, they will increase their photosynthetic rate. That means they can grow faster, but that is dependent 100% on having all the other things they need for growth, nutrient and water being the two main ones. Um, so if you don't have enough water and you don't have enough nutrient, then you can have as much CO2 as you want and you are still not going to, to be able to grow faster or make more, more product uh, in the case of wheat being grain. Um, so it's not as simple as saying, well, high CO2 means higher rates of, of photosynthesis, which means higher rates of growth because something else will be limiting. Um, if we could provide a plant with high CO2, high water and optimum temperature and optimum nutrition, sure, we could increase uh, productivity, you know, by a lot. Um, I don't want to put a number on it, but by a lot. Um, but we can't do that. Um, and even if we think about controlled environment spaces, um, which, which I suspect is, is an area of, of potential growth, as long as we can get the energy to, to power those controlled environments from renewable sources. Otherwise, we'll just be making matters worse. Mm -hmm. yes, but actually, I was just talking about that with someone today. Um, the controlled environment agriculture CA is really, it's exciting. And I think it's really easy, especially with technology. It's, it's a really exciting space and really easy to get caught up in, um, which is a big issue, but finding silver bullets. And I think that is one of the problems like you're just talking about with is siloing and thinking that only looking at one of the variables and not really considering everything. And you really mm -hmm. have to think about how widespread the impacts can be on a number of other components of whatever system it is, but like Sundrop Farms up in Port Augusta is a really mm -hmm. good example. I think that I'm Absolutely. sure has been used as a case study, which, um, yeah, a renewable, renewably powered hydroponic a tomato yep. Yep. warehouse essentially, which also produces enough power to desalinate the water used for yep. the irrigation and then all of the power for it, which is, and if it can be follow that sort of model, but then otherwise having, yeah, in say urban areas, it'd be, be great a lot of opportunity there to provide you know urban food production but um mm -hmm. only if that the power that's required isn't then contributing further to the demise of our ability to produce food <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah so increases in increases in temperature will be catalyzing more sort of inc increases in heat waves and longer dry seasons maybe increases in pest resurgence as well based on if we've got wetter periods depending on 
you're saying maybe South Australia, we won't be getting a longer wet season, but maybe in more northern parts, say Queensland, they might have increased trouble with pests and there'll be changes in rainfall. Yeah, actually the pest the pest situation is really complicated um, because many pests are, are happier at warmer temperatures. So they may potentially go through more life cycles than in previous climates. So you could actually end up with pests being um, having having a really great time as far as their, their life cycles are concerned. However, some of the climate other climate parameters might actually be less favourable for those pests. So if if you dive into the pest and disease literature, it's it's a bit of a minefield because no one is is really has really got a good handle on it. Um, when I spoke to someone from the Australian Wine Research Institute who um, deals with incoming questions and calls from viticulturalists, they have over the last 10 years been seeing pests in their vineyards that they've never seen in their vineyards before. And again, we need more data on that to know whether that's just one of those freakish things that that happens um, or whether it is something that is because climate is changing and that balance between the good bugs and the bad bugs um, are is 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 just changing the biodiversity of of that population. Um, so a lot of the data that's out there is is probably slightly anecdotal in that sense. Um, and as I'm not an entomologist, I'm not really over, all over that stuff. But I've, when I've spoken to entomologists, they've just said, "Yeah, wow, it's really complicated." Well, so it sounds like it's quite hard to draw a conclusion in the pest world, which makes it even more of a wicked problem and harder to yeah. find an answer for. Before, we've touched on a few things that I'd love to hear more about, but before we move on, I'd just like to say or ask what some of the biggest challenges are with predicting future climate scenarios through this modelling, maybe if that if that's an easy enough to summarise, because I imagine it is a, decide, yeah, a very complicated um, for someone who doesn't have as much of an understanding as I would like to in that in that area, <laughs> I think I'd probably join you in saying I don't have <laughs> much of an understanding as I'd like to. Um, so I guess some of the 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 physical parameters of the climate we we've got a reasonable understanding on. So models um, are able to predict with with pretty high levels of confidence what's going to happen to temperature, both land and sea temperature. Things start to get really complicated when um, you bring in what is actually happening to the biological processes underneath. So, of course, all of these things are feeding back and feeding forward on one another. So if you look at the carbon cycle, for example, um, as we've just talked about, plants photosynthesize, they take CO2 out of the air. When they die or when if they drop their leaves and their leaves start to decay, 
those leaves release that carbon dioxide back out into the atmosphere. So that hence why it's called a cycle, because that CO2 is just going round and round and round um, in the cycle. And if you look at all of the biological processes, they are pretty much in balance. So photosynthesis draws X amount of CO2 out of the atmosphere. As the plants die, they then release that same amount of CO2 back into the atmosphere. The, the, giant, the giant change in, in that is when you start digging up fossil fuels. So that CO2 that was locked in those fossil fuels then is, enters the atmosphere. But given that we know how quickly we are digging those things up, we can fairly accurately model what will happen to CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere um, based on, as I said before, a business as usual scenario where nothing changes and then, then we, can, we, can, we can jiggle it either way. We can, we can make it less bad or, or, even, or, or good even if we decide that we're all going to zero CO2 emissions. Um, what what gets really complicated is how biological processes interact with that. So trying to understand if a plant is exposed to high CO2 concentrations over a long time period, will it undergo a period of acclimation? So acclimation is is the term that we use when we all when we get used to a new situation. So we can use that word for ourselves, you know, when we, we, we go into a different time zone, for example, our, all of our body's circadian rhythms acclimate to that new time zone. Um, the same situation happens with plants. As you expose plants to a new environment, many of their processes will acclimate. So a plant which gets exposed to high levels of CO2 will in the short term, have a higher rate of photosynthetic activity. But as that plant gets used to that new environment, most of the time, um, and there is quite a lot of data on this, their, their photosynthetic rate will actually return to what it was before. So it won't maintain that elevated level of, of photosynthetic carbon gain. And what the plant does is it says, hey, I've got more CO2, I actually don't need as much of the photosynthetic machinery, which does all of that photosynthetic carbon um, conversion into sugars. So it reduces the amount of um, that photosynthetic machinery that it has. And it can do that in, in a variety of ways. It can grow fewer leaves. It can grow smaller leaves. Um, it can, its leaves will become probably less green because it doesn't need as much of the green pigment, which is what captures the CO2 out of the, out of the atmosphere. So those sorts of things are, we know quite a lot about them, but we don't know everything there is to know about them. So those sorts of parameters are fed into, into models. You then add on top of that changes in temperature. So you've got increased temperature and increased carbon dioxide levels and those two things are often um, antagonistic to one another in terms of how the plant is going to respond 
um, all plants will have a sort of response curve where it likes it here, it doesn't like it here, and it doesn't like it here. Um, and where that intersects with nutrition and water availability will be different for each plant species. So for a model to be to be really accurate, it has to have the plants that are in the ecosystem in the area of interest. So whether that's a wheat growing area, whether that's a viticulture area, um, and you need to have detailed information about how those that that ecosystem is likely to respond before your model can be can be really accurate. Um, what we know about rainfall is much less uh, certain. So when you add a rainfall component into a model, you probably inherently have more error because rainfall is dependent on so many other things um, and getting all of them right in your model um, can, can, can be a significant challenge. So in terms of going all the way back to your initial question, which was about the sort of reliability of models, I suppose, um, they are becoming more and more reliable every day because the scale with which we can get information is getting smaller and smaller. Just in the last few years, we've gone from satellite data, which told us things on a about a 200 um, metre uh, Kilo, no, sorry, two kilometer square, because the country is divided into squares as far as a modeler is concerned. And it it went down from a two kilometer square down to a 200 meter square or, or something like that. So, so all the time, the models are getting spatially much more accurate. That was really long winded. But No, that was so great. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Um, and you definitely have been touching into the next thing that I would like to ask, which I think you sort of answered most of the next question, but we'll go, I'll go there anyway. Um, so we've seen you were talking about the short-term and long-term effects on plant production of both changes in oil, changes in atmospheric carbon, which will then lead to changes in temperature, increases in temperature. and so plants will respond to initial increases in carbon through an increase in photosynthesis, um, but then in the long term they will reduce. Um, and am I right to say that plants in that response curve will only be able to operate at a certain level of photosynthesis given a, within a certain temperature range as well? So um, Absolutely, yeah. And if, and if that temperature is too high, it means they'll be trying to regulate their own temperature much at a much greater intensity there for utilizing a lot more water to produce produce the same result as well which will then mean that water management becomes a lot more difficult with those increases in temperature absolutely yep um so can we expect uh, is, is it possible to say what effects increases in temperature and increases in carbon will have on on plant production in terms of say yield as well yeah i mean again it it all it all comes down to to a th to thresholds i suppose 
Um, and it's it's interesting. You you often hear people talking about a tipping point. You know, they'll sort of say we're at a climate tipping point, and I find that really challenging to conceptualise in my mind because as a biologist, and you 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 will know this too, Roman, that most biological processes are not on or off. Most of them are. They might have an optima where they are operating where everything in the system is operating to its sort of maximum ability. Um, but it's used, there's usually a range, you know, um, where, where things are, are humming along quite happily. So I, I guess I, f- I find the idea of a tipping point a bit challenging when you're thinking about biological systems. Um, especially systems like yield, um, plant yield, because there are so many complex factors which feed into the ultimate, you know, grain yield, berry yield, fruit yield. Um, and I, 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 whether CO2, temperature or water have the bigger effect will depend on the variety of crop that you're particularly looking at. When I ask, I often ask my students, which is which is the most important factor? And then I tell them there's no right or wrong answer here. I just, I want to hear your, uh, your argument to me about is it CO2, is it temperature or is it um, light, is it water? We haven't even talked about light yet. Um, and very often they tell me water and I think if someone was to ask me that question, I think water is all plants are they they rely on water pressure, so that's turga within their cells to maintain their physiology. A plant without water, so a cell that like if you forget to water your house plants and they wilt, that that means that all the other processes that are going on in that plant will be impacted. Um, so I suspect that when we look at what crops we rely on for food, water is going to be the big one driving where we can grow things. I think the other really important thing to think about is, and I, my students have actually just didn't, I've just finished marking their exam, And one of the questions was talking about we rely on the majority of our food comes from seven plant species and five animal species. That is crazy. (laughs) So diversification of the the species that, that we consider sort of staple foods I think will be a big part of the answer to coping with food production over the next, I don't know, say 50, 50 years while we catch up with renewable energy to then start to flatten the curve, which is very topical given what's happening in <laughs> South Australia, flatten the curve of CO2 increase in the atmosphere. Um, because if we can do that, then there will be areas of land which 
remain productive as far as food production is concerned. Yeah, it's interesting trying to paint a, I, I guess it's quite hard to paint a picture of what we can expect, say, for Australia for our future in terms of food production, um, given there's so many variables in each different food bowl will react differently and mm. sort of looking more into this food system space, you're coming to the conclusion that solutions are always geographically dependent um, mm -hmm. and it is very hard to make broad generalisations, which is generally part of the problem um, mm -hmm. and trying to apply the same model of whether to every scenario. I'm interested in if Australia, particularly this is not quite just sort of around this, but as our, ours, as an export-orientated na nation, whether we'll be able to keep up with that in the future, which is... Do you know, it wouldn't surprise me if, and I think there's probably a bit of a, a move towards this already, is that our food, what we consider our food bowl will become much more regional. So we we will be looking for diversification, um, which means that more of our food is sourced much more locally. Now, the word local in an Australian context is because we are such a big place, um, you know, local might be the southern half of, of Australia or the southeastern corner or something like that. Um, and whether that comes down to a much bigger appreciation for the carbon footprint um, of a mango from northern Queensland ending up in our supermarkets in Adelaide, whether, whether that's what it is or whether it is more to do with um, just making sure that or, or this or this idea of diversification of of what food we grow, I'm I'm not sure where the the push point will be there. Mm -hmm. um, your question about will we be? I I think we probably will always want to try and export our food and uh, and as, assuming we're sensible about it, we sh we should still be able. I mean, we do. This is the other bizarre thing. We grow globally. We grow more, way more food than we need. It's just that we waste so much of it, and and that food is often not where it needs to be. So, and that that's another another story, really. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah, I, I mean, I don't think there, there I doubt we're ever going to see a situation, we might, but I doubt in the, in the near to, to medium future we're not going to see a situation where we say we cannot export any food because we, ha aren't, we can't grow enough um, because we know we can. It's, it's just being way more savvy about, the way we use and not abuse the the food that that we grow. Um, so yeah, I, I, I would I'd I'd be surprised if if you know export markets kind of just just died. I I, I just don't think that's going to happen. Sure. Yeah, I think that comes from a bit more of an existential thinking where we don't get things under control and yields drop. Yeah. But 
I would like to think that we get things under control and can continue supporting all of our local, all of our neighbouring countries and, you know, helping Absolutely. address food security internationally. Because yep. we do a lot of that. On the, the last topic, one of the last topics I wanted to talk about was so the options we have to keep up our horticultural production in a changing global climate. And you've mentioned all of them. Um, so we've spoken about, you know, if areas begin to change and the seasonal and the seasons change, and we may have to think about moving our production areas, you know, to down to Tasmania or <laughs> more, coming more south or, um, and that seems like a probably realistic thing to happen. I'm sure I have just, I imagine there's a lot of investment and we've seen, um, lots of investment in the south in Tasmania as well as England as well people buying up vineyards say because they're aware of the the temperature shifts that are happening mm. um and you've also mentioned about how uh species will play an important role um so we might need species that are able to sit in the soil until winter or uh yep. sort of the alternative to wheat um which we're you talking about sort of c4 and c3 those different yeah yep yeah um as far as alternative species for um like food production what would you imagine that that would be so we've would that be native species or enhanced species as well or a combination um i think it probably is going to be a combination i would abs- i would love to see more indigenous knowledge um being embraced um, and because the the capacity for um, indigenous foods to sustain us, I I feel is really under um, un- underwhelming in terms of we 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 haven't really understood it enough, and we haven't really engaged with all that knowledge that indigenous people have um, for making use of plants which we know grow grow here and have grown here for thousands and thousands of years. Um, during my PhD, I kind of dabbled in that a little bit. Um, my PhD was on um, Santalum acuminatum, a quondong, um, and there's, there's the problem I think is that we, we're, we try and squash um, native foods into a very Western style of growing those foods, and they don't necess- It just doesn't necessarily work, um, and so it all becomes too hard, and then it just it doesn't get off the ground. So I feel like there's capacity there. Um, it's it's that's probably a huge project and undertaking but I there I think there's got to be knowledge that we're not really using um then in terms of um our kind of staple crops uh GM of some description is definitely the the future in terms of rapid development of new varieties um and I guess then, then you start to move into this, this idea of vertical farming, uh, highly controlled um, 
environments in which you can get very rapid production um, and, you know, really significant um, growth. But as I was talking to a colleague just last week about that, and he said, well, how much, how many leafy greens do we actually need, you know? I mean, those kind of vertical farms and really they're, they're not great for potatoes, for example. They're not great for onions. They're, um, they're great for lettuce. They're great for kale. They're great for things like tomatoes. Um, but there, there are still many staple things which, which we would be hard-pressed to replace that don't really like growing in those environments um so yeah i i i think it's going to be a multifaceted um way forward um involving indigenous crops science in terms of breeding and then infrastructure uh, in terms of technology and that infrastructure obviously is dependent on the use of renewable power I couldn't agree more. I think it will definitely be a yeah, multifaceted approach because it would say urban food is, re- uh, is really exciting and that's an area that I'm particularly interested in, but also have to understand that for, and in, just say in the context of Australia, for a whole population to suddenly transition over, um, it's probably not going to happen too quickly. If, you know, staples are coming in from more regional areas, say small farms or whether it's yeah, hydroponics do offer a good solution to supplement a good diet and have fresh produce that is hasn't traveled as far so it is fresher and more available but you're at the end of the day we're still going to be needing our legumes and onions potatoes starchy vegetables to be coming in and yep. that needs that's going to just have to be produced on a much larger scale um yep. and you t- said earlier which just jogged my memory and i think um, native varieties for an example or other varieties offer a really good opportunity to expand our diet beyond those seven major crops as well and mm-hmm. add nutritional diversity and diversity in the agricultural system so I think that's really exciting we would love to see more um, native crops being involved in our diet but I think yeah there's that utilization issue which some people it's not you can't just introduce it into our diet. You have to yeah, learn yeah. how to use it more or less. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. We worked. We have sort of touched on here and there the role that plants can play in regulating the water cycle as well. Um, how will like, climate change sort of be changing this water cycle? I'm not sure if this is particularly something that you've focused on or because, yeah. Um, <laughs> if not, so it's a very I guess- broad question. So, the, yeah, and the water cycle is super interesting. Um, and so, so what, the, what the climatologists tell us is that the water cycle is speeding up. So what that means is a molecule of H2O is moving faster through the system. Um, and so the great thing about water is that it is. It recycles itself. It is. It's just. It's recycling all the time. Um, so it is moving from a lake or a groundwater or an artesian source through a plant out into the atmosphere 
turns into rain back down into in you know into into the the groundwater system the speed at which an individual water molecule is doing that is speeding up um, and that is purely down to the physics of, of temperature. Um, so what that means is that water is moving through plants faster than it was um, in, you know, and I'm talking in very general terms here, um, but generally that is that is what's happening. So... Uh, However, if that water is not in the ground or not accessible by a plant, then it can't take it up. I mean, that there's it can't, you know, there's no magic by which the plant can access access that water. And I guess that's the thing about plants is they are stuck where they are. They can grow roots towards a water source, but they can't get up and find water. So if the pattern of water movement changes um, and, and water which was in a certain place is no longer in that place, then the plants that are growing there are, are going to struggle. So with the atmosphere being warmer and the atmosphere therefore having a greater capacity to hold water, a lot more of those water molecules will be sitting in the atmosphere as opposed to sitting in the ground and therefore accessible two plants um i have seen figures and i should have looked them up before i spoke to you about the volume of water that goes through a plant and it is staggering um so plants are one of the greatest sort of filtration systems if you like for for water so plants will take in salty water they're not releasing salty water, they are releasing pure water. Um, and of the water that goes through a plant, 99% of it is not used for photosynthesis. Only 1% that enters the plant is used for the photosynthetic reaction. The rest of it sits in the plant and allows it to be turgid and upright, and the rest of it disappears out into the atmosphere. So Plants are an amazing filtration system um, in that sense. So what was salty water going in is pure water coming out. So without, so this is, I guess, where issues of deforestation and, and those kind of things really play into the global environmental issues. Um, and when we talk about um, the water cycle changing, deforestation is has a really big role to play because then you don't have that that connection with the atmosphere like like you did in in places which were dense forest and are then cleared to make way for a monoculture wheat or 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 something similar um, and then you then you run into issues of rising, saline water tables and and those sorts of problems which which then so people might interpret a rising water table as a good thing in terms of well it sounds like there's more water there the problem is that water is then less palatable i suppose because it's bringing all those dissolved salts which were sitting in the soil profile 
but reasonably inert, um, they're, they're then being brought to the surface um, and into the root zone of whatever crop it is that you're growing there. So you've got yet another layer of sort of complex interactions <laughs> of that balance between water being available to a plant and water being of a of a suitable um, makeup to be useful to a plant. Especially with say deforestation, I think there's just on that there's so many issues that you don't even you think of. Okay, first of all, it's clearing forest which then regulates temperature of the area and acts as a carbon store and yeah photosynthesis and increases biodiversity but then once it's gone you not only lose that but then you suddenly create an area which that help you know the temperature increases because there's no um temperature regulation that you might get yeah pan or reduced organic matter because of you know there's no root zone activity yeah, so many, as you were saying, knock-on effects, which it's more than just the, the ones that you might think of immediately. And then the fact that plants only use up 1% of water mix, you know, hopefully we need to encourage more responsible use of irrigation as well and the, mm-hmm. hopefully become better at recycling that because if, you know, the plants are, aren't very thirsty and you just, they're only going to take up 1%, it means there's a lot of water that's probably becoming coming from our finite water tables that's then mm. probably not being fed back into it and then going into our rivers and changing the way that our water systems work as well. So, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but it's so plants play a pretty significant role in slowing that water cycle down is what I gathered where they hold onto it for a little bit longer and keep it in the soil, Yeah, um, which is good, which is a good thing. Yep. So we need more plants. <laughs> <laughs> Always need more plants. Always absolutely. need more plants. <laughs> Would you like to tell me a little bit about the course that you are running at the University of Adelaide, um, plant production in a changing global climate? No, in a it's, changing it, climate. It is, it's, it, it's okay, Roman. It's changed its name about four times. <laughs> <I thought laughs> so, so it is now, it's now called Food Production in a Future Climate. Um, and as the title suggests, its focus is on food production but it certainly, and it changes every time I offer it. So I've run the course now uh, first in 2017, so 18, 19, 20. It's in its fourth year. Um, and every year it's it's been a really different bag of tricks. Um, and I think with a with a course that looks at climate change, um, you that's the way it has to be. Um, because things are moving really fast in terms of our level of understanding. But the key things which um, stay the same are we, we get a modeler to come in and talk, talk to the students. As I've said, I'm not a modeler, so I get a modeler in to do that. Um, and I learn something every time I hear him speak. He's, he's fantastic. Um, and then the students get to actually make their own model. Um, using climate data, which I think is really instructive because it shows students how interrelated all those things are. You can't talk about temperature without CO2, without rainfall and so on. Um, We then try to look at management of water resources, uh, woody, woody vegetation, 
different sources of biofuels. Um, the students this year got to grow their own microalgae um, with the, the vision of using it as a biofuel. Um, that was really fun. Um, they got to choose their own experimental parameters. Lots of them used winery wastewater, which is a really big issue because wineries produce a lot of wastewater um, full of all sorts of things. Uh, as it turns out, microalgae loves to grow in winery wastewater, so that's really good. <laughs> um, Excellent. Didn't know that. Um, and, yeah, so so the students get a broad um, introduction to the complexities of looking at how food production is going to be impacted by a changing climate. And um, I hope that by the when they when they finish a a, the twelve week course, they have a real appreciation for their own place and their own um, the, their own role that they can play in making the world a better place. Um, and one of the questions I asked them in the exam is how is all of this knowledge going to impact your future career? And the, their responses are absolutely lovely. They're so thoughtful and reflective and, and also now knowledgeable about the impact that they, that they can have. Um, and so hopefully leaving them with a real positive feeling about the impact that they can make on all of our futures. I think I will be attending that next year then. <laughs> <laughs> um, what could someone do now to go one small act to make the world a better place? Uh, if you haven't um, sorted out a green waste bin in your kitchen, that's a really simple thing to do. So to get some of those green waste things out of landfill and into um, sort of industrial type composting, I would, that's super simple to do. Yep, no, number one. And um, I guess trying to reduce your own food waste. We talked about food waste and, and what an issue it is. And I know in everyone's busy lives, it's often really challenging but if you can think about reducing just one part of your general food uh, cycle in your own household, I think little things like that help as well. That is excellent. Yes, that is that is yep green because food waste is just such a one of those problems that you think I think that needs to be more understanding that it goes beyond your bin. Um, it's you know it's the food that's being thrown out it's the resources used that to make it it's the methane that's produced when it breaks down in landfill and isn't being recycled Absolutely. into compost but I think that's you've covered so many amazing incredible points really interesting points all very crucial and I think as far as what I wanted to get out of this conversation it's ticked all the boxes so I'd yeah, really like to thank you for taking the time to answer these really complex questions but you've answer them so yeah really concise and lots more points than I was expecting um which is awesome thank you. thanks Roman I, I would encourage anyone who um you know wants to find out more about the state of the climate in Australia to read the 
uh, Bureau of Meteorology and CSIRO's report, The State of the Climate, uh, 2020. So every two years they produce a really in-depth report, um, but they it's written in a language which everyone can understand. Um, you can download the report um, from their website. So if you Google State of the Climate 2020, you will you'll find it. Um, and it, it will say things probably in a in a much uh, less convoluted way than than I have if if you're interested in in kind of understanding what we know about the climate and what we we predict uh, is is going to happen so highly recommend it really you really really well written report sure to add that into the show notes at the bottom thank you um, no worries. But yeah, no, thank you so much, Beth. I really appreciate you taking the time today. That was no wonderful. worries. Thanks, Roman. Well, everyone, that's it for now. I hope you enjoyed this incredibly informative conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Climate Proof Food podcast. Be sure to visit climateproofood.com to join the conversation and access the show notes. Support us by following us on Facebook at Climate Proof Food and on Instagram if you have the time. I've listed the individuals, organisations and resources that were brought up in this episode for you to have a look at. Thanks again and we'll speak to you soon.